When the discovery of unmarked graves of Indigenous children took Canada by storm, it unleashed a reckoning that was generations overdue. For Canada's Indigenous people, it's another tragic but not unexpected moment. The shocking discoveries of several hundred unmarked graves at former boarding schools for Indigenous children in Western Canada has focused attention on a dark chapter of that nation's history. But south of the border, in the United States, there was another story looming just as large. The boarding school system for Native American children was even more extensive than Canada's, and even less is known about it. The history of the schools is often surrounded by a culture of silence, by the government that started the system, and by some of the Indigenous families who survived it. It could be easy for people to want to say, oh, well, this was, you know, this is in the past, and this was so long ago, and it wasn't. So what will it take for a reckoning? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking with Kavitha Chikuru, who made the film Buried Truths for Al Jazeera's documentary program, Fault Lines. She'd never reported on the boarding school system before, but she'd often heard about it. When I've done reporting before in Indigenous communities in the U.S. with tribes and tribal nations, it doesn't matter which story I I was working on, boarding schools always came up because just the impact is so visceral and so long-lasting. So in the film, you focus on one school in particular. It's called the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. More than 10,000 children were taken to the Carlisle School before it closed in 1918. Many of the kids died and were buried in a cemetery on site instead of being returned to their parents. And at this school is a cemetery. You speak to a woman named Eleanor who went on a journey to find her great-aunt, her grandmother's sister, Mary. And in the film, she says, sometime in the 60s, Grandma said to her, My sister Mary went to school and she's buried there. And that's basically the only comment she made. And Mom always wondered, what did that mean? So can you tell us that story? So we're talking about three generations, grandmother, mother, granddaughter. And the granddaughter, Eleanor, has been looking for her great aunt who went to boarding school and died there. And so she and her mother began a few decades ago this search for information to find Eleanor's grandmother's sister, her older sister, Mary. She didn't even know what school she'd gone to because her own mother, um, in this case, Eleanor's grandmother, just it wasn't something she talked about. When you hear words like that, you don't know to ask other questions because you're, you're shocked by the words that you just heard. And you, then if you go back and try to ask a question later, it was a situation where it wasn't to be asked again just by the demeanor of my grandmother. We don't talk about those things. And so over the course of decades, beginning in the late 60s, for decades, she was handwriting letters, making phone calls, trying to find any information about this relative. She ended up eventually figuring out that Mary went to Carlisle. And along that road, Eleanor and her mother also had to face questions about how sure they were that they'd lost a relative in the boarding school system, or if they'd been mistaken. 
Eventually, they found two pieces of paper that linked Mary and her death to Carlisle in 1908. It's like, see, I told you she was here. It was like, we knew she was here. And you're finally getting paperwork to prove that what we already know, oral history doesn't, never carries much impact. But there's paperwork that shows she was there. But what they didn't find was a tombstone. The Carlisle Cemetery had 194 graves, and 14 are marked unknown. Mary is thought to be one of those unknowns. If Grandma hadn't said that one word, one brief sentence, and if Mom hadn't picked up on it, we'd have no idea that she was there. What was filming like at this cemetery? It was, I mean, it, I, I should have a good answer for this, but I don't just because it was awful. It was hard just looking at these, it's just, the cemetery's just off the road. It's just right by the road. So there's people just driving by every day. And they probably don't know that the cemetery that they're looking at is filled with children. And that's, I, it's, in a way, I feel like that also says a little bit about U.S. history, that this really horrific dark chapter happened in the U.S. and people don't know about it. But it's, it was haunting filming at Carlisle. Carlisle was the first government boarding school to open, but the system eventually grew to encompass hundreds of schools and tens of thousands of Native children. In the early 1800s, the U.S. government began sending funds to mission schools, to church schools that already existed, and saying, we want you to educate Native Americans. And then a U.S. Army official named Richard Pratt said, you can't keep them in the community. What you need to do is take them away from their family, cut them away from the culture, and we're going to assimilate them. Pratt put his assimilationist ideas into practice on Native prisoners of war under his charge. He enforced a strict military lifestyle, including uniforms, inspections, and drills. The prisoners were also taught to speak, read, and write English, and receive sermons on Christianity. And the context of all of this is that it was occurring during and towards the end of the wars that the government was waging against tribal nations. And the the boarding school system is really part of that same violence. And the cost of these wars at that time drew notice from U.S. government and army officials. In the late 1800s, estimates put the cost of the fighting it took to exterminate Native Americans in the millions. The cost of educating one Native child was estimated to be $1,200. So Richard Pratt suggested a new approach, assimilation by force. And Pratt's idea. He's infamous for saying, kill the Indian, save the man. That military history is also present at the Carlisle School. It used to be a military barracks before the Interior Department transformed it into the first off-reservation boarding school. That is, the first school not near the Native population. Carlisle closed in 1918, so there's no survivors from Carlisle to hear like direct testimony. But from other survivors we talked to who went to different schools, It was, they all had a similar military environment. It was very harsh. They weren't allowed to speak their native language. And if they did, they were punished, usually violently punished. And they couldn't talk or 
participate in their own culture in any way. And so I think that's important too, to understand that it was a military format. And while they were perhaps having classes, they were also doing labor in terms of like carpentry, blacksmithing, working in fields. So it also wasn't very safe. The labor that they were doing was under the guise of educating them. Educating them in what? To, I mean, the government would say to, quote unquote, be civilized, but it was essentially to make them white and Western and Christian. I think there can be a tendency by some people when they hear stories like this to want to blame the parents or to ask, what were the parents doing? Why didn't they intervene? What's the answer? The parents didn't have a choice. They didn't have a choice. In some cases, the kids were forcibly taken. The parents were threatened with jail. Oftentimes, the government would withhold rations, which were, by treaty, they were supposed to give them. But they threatened to withhold them if they didn't give them their children. So, effectively, starving them if they didn't give their children away. Yeah, which would then mean that their kids would then go hungry. Because at that point, they had forced tribes into reservations and forced them away from their own way of maintaining their life. And so the government had forced them to rely on them in that sense. There was no choice. The parents did not have a choice. And once the children were taken, schools often kept parents from knowing what was happening to them. In one case, one of the survivors we talked to, he had written to his mom about the abuse that he saw and experienced when he was at boarding school. But then she never said anything to him about it. She never did anything. And so what he told us is that he thought that she didn't care. And then many years later, when he was an adult, she one day said, oh, you used to write me letters, but a lot of times the letters, a lot of it was blacked out and I never understood why. And so this is something we've heard about before is that they oftentimes they either redacted the letters before they were sent to families, or in some cases, they never sent the letters at all. Eleanor, her mother, she is part of her kind of research. She went to the boarding school where her own mother went and looked at her mom's file, and she found letters that her mom had written that were not sent. Wow. Yeah. I think one of the most heartbreaking things about watching this documentary is remembering These are children. These are little kids for the most part. So what were some of the things people told you about what it was like to enter these boarding schools for the first time? From some survivors that we talked to, they've described not knowing where they were going or why. And it's, you know, from the people we've talked to, but it's also, also, you know, just other testimonial that's out there. It was really common for once they arrived for the children's hair to be cut off. They were stripped down, they were put into really harsh baths, and their hair was cut. All of their hair was cut off. And for a lot of tribes, hair is part of that culture. And so taking, you know, cutting their hair in that way was also literally cutting them away, cutting away part of their culture. So one important fact is that we don't even know how many of these schools there were. You talked to one woman, Denise who's made it her life's work to track down as many as she can. So what has she found so far? Denise, she's now a retired professor, but her, both of her parents, as well as her grandparents, all went to boarding schools. 
The way that Denise got into when she decided to figure out how many schools there were in the U.S., she had been in Canada. So about a little over 10 years ago, I think, Canada began their own truth and reconciliation process in regards to the government's treatment of First Nations um, there. And Denise went to Canada to observe some of the proceedings. And at one point, one of the First Nations leaders there turned to her and asked her how many boarding schools there had been in the U.S. I drew a blank. I'd never been asked that question. I didn't know. I don't think the United States knew. No one had ever asked the federal government how many boarding schools they ran. No one ever asked the churches how many boarding schools they ran. So I decided at that time to dedicate as much time as I could as a professor to research how many boarding schools were in the United States. Denise eventually reached a tally. Between schools run by the government and schools run by different church denominations, of 406. But the number keeps rising. And she also took countless testimonies of the conditions that contributed to so many deaths. The food was horrific. There were worms in the food that the kids were eating. So the buildings were cold, they were underheated, the kids were hungry, and they were half-worked to death. The, the discipline there was severe. They killed kids through the discipline. They, the kids were killed. So, Kavitha, did each of those schools also have burial grounds, that there's chances for more missing people to be found on those grounds? Or what does that mean? So we don't know if each school had a cemetery um, because the government has never actually looked into any of this. I think, unfortunately, particularly for the schools that began in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, it is very likely that those schools all had cemeteries. You may be wondering, if a child dies in your custody, why wouldn't you just send their remains to their family? Denise says that was against U.S. government policy by order of the U.S. Department of the Interior. They were not to send the bodies of children home because it was an expense that they, they couldn't afford. And that if it was requested by a superintendent of a school to send a body home, that it would be denied. And of course, the parents couldn't afford it. I think of my father. He was nine years old when he was sent to Chamawa. If he would have died there, it was three days and three nights journey on a train to get him back home. And he was raised by an old Cree couple that didn't speak English. When they had no money, they had a little log cabin and subsistence hunted and so on in 1925. So he would have been buried there. There was no way they would have been able to afford to send him home. And even for those who physically survived the schools, they're affected for the rest of their lives in numerous ways, whether that's PTSD or breakdowns in their own family relations later in life. The sad thing of both my parents is that neither one of them ever spoke their language again. So we'd hear my grandmother talking Indian to mom, but mom would answer in, in English. So when I asked her later in her life before she passed away, how come she never taught us kids our language? And both my parents said, we didn't want you to go through the hell that we went through, which means how they were disciplined at, at boarding school. So for the first time ever in the U.S., there have been some initial steps towards accountability. The government department that's responsible for Native American affairs, 
is for the first time ever being run by a Native official, Deb Holland, the Secretary of the Interior. I come from ancestors who endured the horrors of Indian boarding school assimilation policies carried out by the same department that I now lead. The same agency that tried to eradicate our culture, our language, our spiritual practices, and our people. What can you tell us about what's been done so far? After the discovery of the graves in Canada, the U.S. government announced that they would actually, for the first time, undertake an investigation into their boarding school policy, which will entail figuring out how many schools they had, how many students went, identifying all of those students, and finding out how many children died, where are the burial sites. And I will say that people that we talked to in our research, everyone we talked to said the only reason this investigation is even happening, it's not just because of the discovery of the graves in Canada, it's because the Interior Secretary is Indigenous And I think that's pretty true. So we know some. The department began their investigation. They've held some consultations with tribes. I mean, this is a big undertaking. It's all very piecemeal. It's all scattered. This information in this history is scattered across the country. And so the Interior Department has said that they are going to finish this and submit a report, which from everyone we spoke to, it seems like that will be very difficult. Denise said the same thing especially if a major goal is to look for unmarked graves. She gave the example of her own father. My father's records alone, they are up in the Federal Archive in Seattle. I found some records of his at the North Dakota Heritage Center. And I found some records of his down in Kansas City Archives. So that's just one one person. They're scattered all over. So they're at universities, they're in federal archives, they're in church archives, and a lot of them have just been lost. It's not just the lack of records. For the living survivors, giving their testimony to researchers, or eventually even to an investigation, is its own trauma. A lot of the stories are still in the shadows. Denise saw that in the course of her own research. There was another elder that said, When do we tell our boarding school stories? Thanksgiving dinner? Do we say, oh, I was molested for five years by a priest at boarding school, you know, at a family dinner? So there's just this resounding silence of boarding school survivors. Because when do they tell their stories? What format? How? Who? No one's ever asked them. And many of them are so traumatized that they don't want to talk about it. They can't talk about it. This one gentleman, he patted the back of his head and he said, my boarding school story will stay forever there. He would never tell. For the people that you spoke to, what would reconciliation look like for them? What are they looking for at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question and everyone has their own answer. And, you know, I think everybody has their own take on it. When it comes to an apology, in 2010, in the National Defense Authorization Act, um, the like defense funding bill, there was an apology written into that in terms of the government's treatment of Native Americans. It was, I w- and I think most people would say that that does not constitute a real apology, just a like a line item in the defense Budget bill. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But that's it. The lack of an apology is one way survivors have been left on their own to answer the question of how to heal. 
It's also a question Denise has pursued in the testimony she's taken. Some of them mentioned the apology, and others said, I'll never get my childhood back. Apology won't mean anything. And they said a return to tribal spirituality, a return to our language, a forgiveness. So somebody said, how do you forgive the unforgivable? So what healing looks like, it's a longer discussion. Each tribe must decide for itself what healing looks like. For people like Eleanor, who have lost relatives, it's that search to find them that has become much of their healing. You know, so much of our life has gone without anybody acknowledging what we've done or what we've gone through. You always feel alone, left out, that people don't care. Today you hear about people, okay, we need to heal with whatever trauma we've had in our history. And that must have been hers, is not knowing where people were. Mom wanted to know who her family was. So that's why she would go out and try to put the picture together to say, who are we? Why are we scattered? Why do I not know this part of my family? What happened? You know, just because something was quote unquote long ago isn't an excuse to not recognize what happened. But this wasn't long ago. For Eleanor, we're talking about two generations. For Denise, we're talking about one. And then for the survivors, they're still alive. They're out there. This was not, you know, something that we're talking about hundreds of years ago. This is a living history. So I think it's important for people to, like, know what this country did to the first people who, you know, whose land this is, to take that land away from them. And this is this, like crime, I would call it a crime, this crime, this theft of children was part of that way of taking this country. While Kavitha was making the film, she asked Denise if she thinks the United States is ready for a real truth-telling process. I I don't care if the country is ready. It needs to be told. Uh, Our stories need to be heard. This part of the United States history has to be told. And that's The Take. To watch the Fault Lines film, Buried Truths, check the link in our episode description. We'll also send out a link on our social media accounts. We're at AJ the Take on Twitter and Instagram. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke, with Priyanka Tilbe, Nagin Oliai, Ruby Zaman, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is our editor. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. Special thanks to Daria Marchenkova. We'll be back. <laughs>